Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Heredity listeners. Welcome back. This month's a very cool episode. We'll be unraveling the population genetics of an extinct species of giant flightless bird and finding out the shelf life of copulatory plugs in mice. Unless you live in a cave somewhere, you may have noticed that Hollywood blockbuster Jurassic World hit the cinemas last month. In it, scientists genetically engineer a hybrid dinosaur, cringeworthily named Indominus Rex, like a T-Rex, but even more terribler. Sadly, or thankfully, depending on how you look at it, the existence of dinosaur DNA today will probably remain in the realm of science fiction. That's because we know that there are limits to the analysis we can achieve with degraded genetic material, and given our current estimates of its rate of decay, dinosaurs snuffed out way too long ago for this to be feasible. But birds are basically dinosaurs, and one particular group of birds, the moa, were wiped out much more recently. Ancient DNA researcher Morten Erik Allentoft from the University of Copenhagen has recovered lots of well-preserved specimens of the largest of these species, the New Zealand giant moa. By his estimates, these birds perished not millions, but thousands of years ago, and as such, Morton and his team were able to make some very cool inferences about their biology. Here's Morton. They went extinct for around uh, six, seven hundred years ago when the Polynesian uh, seafarers uh, reached New Zealand. So New Zealand was colonized by humans very late, actually the last major landmass to be colonized by humans. And of course, they encountered these uh, moa birds, nine species of them, varying a lot in size and distribution. But they all went extinct quite rapidly after humans arrived probably because the human population grew quite fast and here was a very nice source of protein. But quite an intimidating source of protein. These birds were huge, right? They were. I mean, some of the smaller species were only like turkey-sized, but the biggest species that we have actually worked with in this particular study called the Dinones robustus could weigh up to 250 kilos for the females. The males were somewhat smaller, which is an interesting feature for moa. They have these reverse sexual dimorphism where the males are a lot smaller than the females. That's interesting you mentioned that sexual dimorphism because as far as extinct species go, we know a huge amount about this animal, don't we? Yes, we do, actually. I mean, the moa were one of the... First of all, they're not that ancient. I mean, they went extinct six, seven hundred years ago, which means that we actually have quite a lot of material from these in New Zealand because uh, they have been found in swamps and wetlands all over the country, really. And also, because they're not that ancient, the DNA tend to be quite well-preserved in at least the youngest of the bones. That, of course, means that the whole field of ancient DNA have been quite interested in studying the moa bird for a long time. And they were one of the first species, along with the mammoth, I think, to actually have have ancient DNA profiled. We'll get on to some of the difficulties of, of working with ancient DNA. But first of all, what kinds of markers were you looking at with, with these 74 individual samples? First of all, mitochondrial DNA, we're examining something like 450 base pairs of the D-loop in the mitochondria, which is sort of the classical genetic marker to use when you're looking into population demographics and genetic structure. 
And then also, which is kind of new for what we're doing in this study, is that we use microsatellite markers, which is a highly variable repetitive DNA sequences and found in the nuclear genome and not only the mitochondria. So these markers tend to mutate quite rapidly, and that means that they also carry quite a lot of information. They're good markers to when you want to look into more recent demographic events or more recent population structuring, for example, and more detailed high-resolution population genetics. They have been used, these type of markers, for thousands and thousands of studies on modern organisms, but only very limited in, in an ancient DNA context. Yeah, these microsatellite markers, I mean, they come up on the Heredity podcast all the time in terms of population genetics, but I guess this, this paper is kind of about population paleogenetics. Definitely, you can call it that. I mean, there's been a few studies previously based on ancient DNA studies based on microsatellite markers, but only very few. And, and, and one of the reasons is that these are, are nuclear markers, which means they're found scattered throughout the nuclear genome. And you don't have much nuclear DNA left in ancient individuals because, or in ancient cells, I should say, because you only have one nucleus per cell, whereas you have many, often many mitochondria. So that's why the, the field of ancient DNA has traditionally been focusing on the mitochondria, simply because there's more, more of it. Mm. Now, okay, so you were armed basically with these two types of genetic profiles, the mitochondria and, and these microsatellites. Uh, you also were able to date the individuals that you were taking these samples from, weren't you? Yes, that's true. We This project was funded by the Marston Fund of the Royal Society in New Zealand, and we've spent a lot of funding actually on the on the radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon dating is quite expensive, so we so but it is very very important in this context because we need the chronological precision. Otherwise, we're just analysing kind of blindly. So let, let's cut to the chase then, because the headline result of this paper is that four pairs of the individual fossils that you found. You, you found to be closely related to each other. Yes, that's true. I mean, initially we were interested in the more large-scale population demographic, and these, these results have been published elsewhere. But doing the sort of mining of these data sets, we came to realize several interesting aspects. And one of them were that when we actually plotted a genetic distance with the temporal distance between all individuals, so how closely are they related in time and how closely are they related in, in their genes, so to speak, in their microsatellites uh, profiles, a couple of individuals or four pairs actually seem to cluster out with very high genetic resemblance and also very short distance of uh, separation in time. And of course, this... Uh, made us wonder whether these could actually be relatives. So you knew they were from, you know, roughly the same time because you'd done the dating, but the the analysis to assess their relatedness, that's a, a sort of pairwise genetic relatedness. How does, how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's essentially a comparison of the profile in all the microsatellites. You simply look at genetic similarity between all the pairs within these 74 individuals, and some of these pairs will be more genetically closer just by random chance than others, but some will be genetically closer because they are actually relatives. So this is what we look, we look at pairwise genetic uh, relatedness. And this is something you can do in high resolution when you have microsatellite information. All your samples were females. Have you found fossilized sisters? We may very well have. Unfortunately, we only have using six microsatellite markers. It's very high resolution in an ancient DNA context. But if you're looking at uh, modern samples, for example, you would often require a lot more uh, microsatellite markers to predict are these uh, siblings or are these sisters or, or exactly how are they related. So we're not really venturing into that. We know they're all adult females and we know that they're very closely related. So they may very well have been their sisters. 
Now, does this tell us anything about the social structure of this extinct species of bird? So the first interesting thing was, okay, we have managed to identify these siblings, but does that actually mean anything from a biological perspective? And to sort of address that, we started doing a series of uh, simulations. So what we essentially did were computer simulations of randomly mating uh, populations of various uh, demographic signatures. And um, what we could see is that, first of all, in our observed data set, we are identifying more individuals with high relatedness that we would do in a randomly mating population. So so this is not just a random artifact or a random random thing occurring here. We are actually the observation here must have some some biological relevance. And there are a living species today of these, you know, tall, flightless birds that sort of live in similar situations. Yes, there are red tide species on uh, a lot of the countries in the southern hemisphere. I mean, in, in Australia, for example, we have the cassowary and the, and the emu. In, in Africa, we have the ostrich. In South America, we have the tinamou and, and the rhea. And we, of course, we're trying to look, could, could there be some sort of uh, indication, some social structure in these uh, birds that are related to the, to the moa? I mean, they're all red tides. But the problem is that they seem to vary a lot in their biology, all these different species. So it's very difficult to actually draw uh, direct conclusions based on that. We could see, though, that the cassowary, for example, the, the females and the males do not live together and the females are highly territorial. So the males are only really being called in, so to speak, when it's mating season. Otherwise, they're rejected again from the territory. And for example, all these moa birds were found in a, in a highly productive habitat uh, around a swamp called the Pyramid Valley. All these four pairs of, let's call them sisters, uh, at least the closely related individuals. So it could be that this particular habitat was highly productive and the la- much larger females would cluster around this highly productive habitat and be highly territorial and then uh, exclude the males from this area. What do you see as the future direction then for investigating the paleobiology of this species and other extinct species? We're not planning any future research on, on the MOA. Mostly, we know a lot about MOA already. What would be interesting, of course, would be to look at some of the other species, whether we can identify some of the same patterns. It could also be, I would say, even more interesting. In this particular study, we have focused mainly on uh, North Canterbury, in the, in the, which is a, a region in the South Island of, of, of New Zealand. But it would be quite interesting to, to move outside North Canterbury. Now we know the method works. We have established all the criteria for generating high-quality uh, microsatellite data from extinct individuals, extinct organisms, and now we can actually move out to other parts of New Zealand and look uh, in, and do proper high-resolution uh, population genetics of, uh, of both the moa species on the North Island and South Island. That was Morton Eric Allentoft. Mice, like a broad range of animals that engage in multiple matings, form copulatory plugs when they mate. These hardened plugs are the result of coagulating substances in the male's seminal fluid, and it's likely that their main function is to make life hard for the next guy's semen, although it's possible that they perform other roles too. Copulatory plugs are thought to have evolved in the context of sperm competition, and because they're presumably good for males and bad for females, they may pose a source of sexual conflict for the animals that use them. Whilst there's a huge amount of literature on copulatory plugs, there's little known about the genetic basis for the variation in their phenotype. Plug specialist Matt Dean at the University of Southern California and his team set up an experiment to see how long plugs lasted and to try to pin down what was causing the variation in plug survival. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The big surprise of the study was that small plugs last longer. Here's Matt. About, oh, wow, almost 10 years ago, I published a paper on the frequency of remating in nature and showed that female house mice out in nature mate with more than one male during a single estrus cycle. And so I've always, since then, just become increasingly interested in sort of how males adapt to that competitive situation where they're trying to get fertilizations when that female's already mated with another male. And so copulatory plugs probably play a major role in that kind of adaptation. Right. So, I mean, functionally, how do they work in a bit more detail? Basically, what it is, is it's almost like a mold, you know, when people pour plaster into a mold, except the mold is the female's vagina and cervix, and the plaster is the male's ejaculate. Basically, one protein that comes from the prostate cross-links, you know, one or a few proteins that come from the seminal vesicles. And so it functions like epoxy. It doesn't solidify until those two proteins meet. And those two proteins don't meet until they're in the female's reproductive tract. Because, you, you know, if you're a male, you don't want that solidification to occur while you're, you know, walking around, you won't be able to pee anymore. <laughs> right? So you only want that to occur in the female's reproductive tract. And so that's the only place these proteins meet. And so that's where this, this occurs. And are these pugs widespread across the animals? Yeah, they are. So they're incredibly widespread. Basically, anything that has internal fertilization and multiple mating has plugs. They're found in insects, in fish, in birds, in mammals. Most rodents make a plug. There's only like three known species that don't. A lot of primates make them. So chimpanzees, our closest living relative, makes a copulatory plug, a very prominent copulatory plug. Chimpanzee's mating ecology is very promiscuous, by the way, so that fits that model. Human ejaculates don't coagulate to the extent that they do in chimpanzees, but there is a phase of semi-coagulation and liquefaction, and there's some fertility defects associated with some of that. And, and in terms of the evolutionary forces kind of driving the evolution of these plugs, is it thought that these are sexually selected traits driven by you know female choice for males and... If what I told you is true, that copulatory plugs evolved to sort of inhibit female remating, then that places the plug in the arena of sexual conflict, which is sort of a subcategory of sexual selection. And what I mean by that is the formation of a plug would be really beneficial for a male, but deleterious for a female. So it's beneficial for a male for obvious reasons. It's inhibiting her remating but it's deleterious from a female for the same exact reason, because she's no longer able to mate with other individuals and she might you know, need to. 
So you, you mentioned female choice. So under a model of sexual conflict, a plug is conflicty if the female just mated with a male she does not prefer, right? And she wants to go and mate with another male. Well, now she's got this plug that's sort of inhibiting her from doing that. Now, all of that is just a big story, but that is sort of why we started this study. We wanted to see if there were kind of male-female interactions in the rate of breakdown of the copulatory plug. But there is evidence, isn't there, out there that there is an element of sexual conflict in the form of the biochemistry of these plugs? We showed a few years ago that females upregulate a bunch of proteases in response to mating, and proteases are just proteins that, that chew up other proteins. And what's interesting is the males in male ejaculate, the male ejaculate is enriched for a bunch of protease inhibitors. So what we think might be happening is soon after mating, she's sort of gearing up her system to break down the plug while he's trying to inhibit it. So that's, that's kind of one cool interaction that we think uh, is evidence of sexual conflict. Now, there's others too. So the, the proteins that are involved in making the plug, they evolve very, very rapidly over time. And one hypothesis for why that happens is that male proteins are being selected to sort of avoid the female's degradation machinery. And so you see this a lot in like host pathogen interactions where like, you know, the the proteins on the surface of some pathogenic bacteria often evolve really rapidly. And the explanation is always that, you know, they're being selected to avoid the host's kind of immune system. This is the same concept. It's just not host pathogen. It's male-female conflict. The same sort of evolutionary arms race idea. Yeah, exactly. That rapid evolution is not consistent with sort of harmonious evolutionary interests. And there's other things too. So like there is an association to mating systems. So gorillas don't make a plug anymore. And it's actually very consistent with their mating ecology. So they do not do a lot of multiple mating because their society is structured with a big dominant male that basically beats up other males and prevents them from from mating with females. He's kind of swapped his copulatory plugs for copulatory fists. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well said. And so there are lots of these lovely stories and anecdotes and, you know, quite a lot of evidence for the evolutionary dynamics behind copulatory plugs. But you have set up this experiment with eight different inbred strains of mice. Just explain to me the, the rationale behind your sort of experimental design. So basically people had only anecdotally mentioned in the literature sort of how long a plug survives. And, and if I, you know, if what I just told you is true, then it's got to at least survive for like for a period where the female can get fertilized. And so that was one main goal is just to sort of characterize that. But really what we were after is understanding genetic variation in that survival time. And so that's something that no one had done. And so we took eight strains of mice, six of which were what we call wild-derived strains. So they have several advantages over classical inbred strains, the biggest being just that there's more genetic variation. And then we crossed all eight strains to two strains of females. And what we're really interested in was to understand if there was a interaction between the male and the female genotype. And that goes back to what we were talking about with sexual conflict. You didn't find any evidence of this interaction for... um for sexual conflict? Well, I, I think one, uh, well, I mean, one possibility is there isn't one. Um, and the other is there is one, we just didn't detect it. And so some explanations for why we didn't detect it, I mean, at the end of the day, it's eight strains of males by two strains of females. That's not 
a huge sample size in terms of sampling different genotypes. And, and furthermore, some of the um, proteases that I told you about earlier, they were actually genetically identical between these two strains of mice. And so it might just be that our study was underpowered to, de to detect that, that interaction term. But, but, you know, it's, we did not reject that null hypothesis. It does not mean it's true. So what, what did you learn about the genetic contribution of the males to these plugs? There are genotypes from the males that make long-lasting plugs, and there are other genotypes of males that make short-lasting plugs, and we think that's very cool. I think probably the most surprising thing is males that made small plugs, those plugs lasted a very long time in the female's reproductive tract. And that sort of is very, very surprising to us. There's a lot of comparative studies that suggested that would not be the case. And I think going into this, we would have definitely predicted that large plugs last longer, not small plugs last longer. We found exactly the opposite, that small plugs last longer. I mean, yeah, that's surprising from a kind of comparative approach, but also just from an intuitive physical perspective. A bigger plug has more protein to be degraded. An important thing to realize is that when plugs are degraded, they don't go from a copulatory plug down to nothing. It's degraded to a point where she can expel it. And so when you think of it in that context, it might actually be that a small plug is actually harder for a female to remove, you know, through like physical contractions, for example. Well, I, don't, I don't know this at all. This is all speculation. Another hypothesis we had was that small plugs would maybe induce a less severe immune response from the female. So that would be sort of like it's flying under the radar in the, in the, the female's not like, you know, ramping up her immune system as, as heavily as she would with a large plug. You went on to further investigate that as a possibility. We did. We, we did a little side experiment to test that hypothesis, and we did not find any evidence for it. And another question that your results kind of raise is why any male would ever make a large plug, because they're costly things to build, aren't they? Yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. I think it's important to remember we don't have any link to real fitness here. And so what we have measured is how long a copulatory plug survives in a female's reproductive tract. And we've shown that there's an influence of, of genetics on that. But we haven't said that a small plug is better or worse or a long surviving plug is better or worse. We don't have that information. And so I think that just needs to remain an open question <laughs> because, you know, it could just be that large plugs, they survive less, but they're actually better, you know, for some reason. Maybe they shove more of the ejaculate north into the female's reproductive tract and assist them with fertilization. And who cares how long they last, right? So if they, you can get more of your sperm up there, then maybe that's a potential explanation. We really don't know at the moment, but it is an open question. Sure. And which, you know, are you pursuing any of the questions um, raised in this, in this paper or what's next? Yeah, we are. So we have started to get really interested in the female side of the equation and how she's responding to the plug and how she's responding to males that she might prefer or not prefer. We're looking at the female's response in her brain so we're getting into like a lot of brain chemistry right now, and we're asking what happens before and after mating with males she likes versus males she doesn't like. That would maybe be an alternative way to get at this male-female interaction terms. That was Matt Dean. And that's it from us this month. Join us again for the July edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh, or as Twitter knows me, Jeffrey London. Thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 